So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Ephesians. This is our fourth week in the book of Ephesians. Uh, and I happen to like Ephesians because I have OCD. Um, not really, but like I like everything ordered and, and, and neat and in its place. And not everything that you read in the Bible is like that. You might uh, read John, who wrote John's Gospel. He also wrote a bunch of letters. And it's kind of like weird stream of consciousness from a, a year eight kid who's just like, where are you going, John? And where are all these things connecting? But Paul, completely different. Ephesians, it's made up of two halves uh, and it's six chapters, three chapters, one half, three chapters, another. It just divides neatly and it's beautiful. In the first half, and this is the thing that we've been looking at over the last three weeks, uh, we've seen something that I want to call the indicative. Uh, it's all description. Paul's writing to believers and he's telling them about what God in Christ has done for them. So one of the things I hope you've noticed as we've gone through those three chapters is that you have been told to do absolutely nothing as a Christian. There are no commands. The whole emphasis of the letter so far has been what God has done for you. And so think back. Well, what do we see? In chapter 1, we saw that in Christ, God has given you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, we then looked in chapter 2 and we saw that we were dead in our sin, far from God, and yet Jesus by his blood comes and God in Christ makes us alive. He takes us from being far away and brings us near and gives us access to God. Now, then chapter 3, we kind of ended with that great paradoxical prayer that we would come to know the unknowable. And we learnt that God's love for us in Jesus knows no depth and no bounds. And part of what Christian maturity looked like was to just grapple our minds around that very fact. And one of the things that I hope you've noticed as we've gone through that indicative part of Ephesians is just how mind-boggling what it is that God has done for you. you. You were taken, God takes you as the undeserving, and he gives it everything. He gives you all that he has. You were a traitor, but now because you've been included in Christ, you are now a king or a queen ruling alongside him. And when you let that settle, you begin to realize that the movement that he's taken you from, that death to life, far to near movement, is not a small movement. And that's why Paul, in the second half of Ephesians, changes tack. And instead of the indicative, he moves to what I want to call the imperative, what we must now do. And the key turning point in the letter is, of course, right smack bang in the middle, chapter 4, verse 1, uh, where he says to us, and you see it there in your Bibles, as a prisoner for the Lord then, so here's his flow on, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now this is the first command of the letter, and it's the one from all the other commands flow. Uh, and the framing I think here is important, uh, because we're told there to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So there isn't a hidden catch here. It's not like God has done this thing for you, now you have to do this thing for him, otherwise he's going to boot you out. So this isn't transactional. Christianity is never transactional. There's never conditions on what God gives us when we come to Christ in faith. Rather, if I can coin a term, it's reflectional. It's an acting out of who God has made you to be in Christ Jesus. So, for example, it's like a billionaire decides to adopt a kid from the streets. And whether he likes it or not, that kid is now going to eat lobster and drink wine every time he has dinner. And the reason for that is he's now got a new life. It's hard life being a billionaire's adopted child, isn't it? Um, but it's not because he has to. 
It's not because there's a condition based on, well, I took you off the streets, and if you don't behave and drink your Cabernet Chardonnay or whatever the wine stuff is, that, see, I don't know, I was never adopted by a billionaire. Um, if you don't do that, then you're going back to the streets. That wasn't the condition. He does it because he's expressing what it is to now be the new life that he has. And so a part of what it is to be a Christian then is to learn the type of life that God has given to you and to reflect that in the way that you live. And that's what the second half of Ephesians is all about. Um, We'll read it over the next couple of weeks. We'll see that it's true. Uh, We'll see that the gospel that saves you shapes you, and it shapes you in all of life. So we're going to see instructions on how to speak, what to do with your anger, uh, stuff about greed, stuff about sexual purity, stuff about how you relate to different people in different relationships. Things about how you pray, when you pray. And what we're going to see is that leading a life, living a life worthy of the calling that you have received in Jesus, well, it is a massive deal. It encompasses all of your life and will require all of your focus. And what we see in today's passage in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, uh, are two, I think, key responsibilities that sit at the heart of what it is to live that worthy life. Two things that will shape how you conduct yourself into this community in which God has saved you. And here they are. Here are the two key planks. The first one is this. A life worthy of your calling will involve maintaining the unity that you have in Christ. And the second thing is a life worthy of your calling will attain to the maturity that you have in Christ. So maintaining Christ's unity and attaining Christ's maturity. Those are the two things that we see today look like a life worthy of your calling. Let's have a look at each one of those in the rest of the time that we have. So first of all, let's have a think. Living a life worthy of your calling means maintaining the unity that you have in Christ. And we see it there in verse 3. Paul commands, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. As we look at that verse, the thing that we notice is that the unity that Paul is talking about is both given and maintained. You don't create Christian unity out of scratch. We don't have to work really hard in relationships to somehow make unity. It's given to us because we can only maintain something that we already have. So what is this unity that we've been given? Well, we see it in those two phrases in verse 3, don't we? The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, first of all, let's have a look at the bond of peace. What is peace according to Paul and the gospel? Well, we've seen it already in Ephesians, haven't we? We saw this last week. It's not subjective calm. It's not like wandering around in crocs and a toga unfazed by life. We saw that. It's not that sort of peace. It's it's relational peace. The peace that Paul talks about here is the peace that Christ won for us when he reconciled us by his blood on the cross. And so he took divided humanity and he brought them together. And then he takes that humanity, which is hostile and estranged from God because of their sin, and he provides a way to bond us back to God and reconciles that relationship. Now, crucially, we see in the second phrase that this is a unity that we share in the spirit. One of the things that we've seen in Ephesians is that when you become a Christian, Jesus gives you his spirit as a guarantee or a down payment that you are now God's and that you will receive the inheritance of eternal life uh, when he returns. And that spirit dwells within you. And he is the means by which you are connected to Christ. 
and the means by which you have access to God. We see that in chapter 2, verse 18. But critically, he's also the means by which we're connected to one another. Because it's the same spirit. It's not like there's 50 spirits here in the room or 50 parts of the spirit. The one spirit dwells in each of you if you're a believer. And so in this weird, um, mysterious way, we are connected in more than just a you're a mate, I'm a mate. Uh, And because of that, it has some implications. Paul goes on and he says in verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And his point is simply to emphasize that our calling when we become a Christian and are included in the family of God is one of profound unity. It's something that we're given. It's something that we share by virtue of being a Christian. And so to live a life worthy of that calling is to maintain and cultivate what we've already been given by Jesus through his spirit. What are we to do? Well, we're to seek to maintain the unity in the way that we behave, the way that we relate, the way that we treat one another. And Paul is not under any illusions here, I don't think, because remember the people that he's talking to. These are the Jews and the Gentiles, people groups who have historically hated one another for centuries. And prejudice like that doesn't just disappear overnight. It's systemic. It's in our thinking. Even if we don't believe it, it needs to be worked at. And the reason for that is twofold, I think. It's really hard because, first of all, you're dealing with difference. I don't know whether you've noticed this in your churches, even your youth groups or wherever it is that you're hanging out with God's people. God saves people that are not like you. They don't speak like you. They don't do the same things as you. They're just weird. You can't resonate like you don't click. So that's one thing. There's difference. But secondly, there's also sinfulness. Because even when you do click, we say and do things that are by their nature destructive to relationships. So really when you think about it, you're dealing with a family, aren't you? Because these are the things that plague a family. You don't get to choose your family, uh, but you have to work out a way to live with them, especially when they're weird and different and especially when they do things that hurt you. Uh, but here's the thing. You know that saying, blood runs thicker than water? You know, the, the whole idea that, you know, if you're a part of a family, like that's the bond that's the strongest bond of all? It's not true. The assumption is that if you're a part of a family, loyalty will come with it. But the reality is you have to work at it. It's your choice. So even if that unity is guaranteed by a family connection, whether it's biological or in the case of the Christian spiritual it can still go one of two ways. You can make every effort, like Paul tells us to in verse 3, or you can avoid every effort. And I can point to how this works in actual families. Uh, I use myself an example here. Uh, In my early teenage years, my sister and I didn't get along very well. Uh, And that was largely because of me. I was just a jerk older brother. I did things that really hurt her. Uh, And it could have been really bad. But one of the things that happened as we grew up and went through high school into our 20s is that both of us, out of Christian love, worked at loving one another. And so today, our relationship is way different to what it was at the beginning of high school. There's still tensions, there's still things to navigate, but we're not just united by blood, but now by mutual effort. You see, the unity that we had been given, we maintained. Now, that could go the other way too, I think. Instead of making every effort, you can avoid every effort. And if you did that, then you would have ended up like one of my other mates and his twin sister, They don't talk to each other anymore. And you can't get any closer than a biological twin, right? But because they didn't maintain the unity that they had been given, 
they lost it. And the same is true for us. The unity of the church is both a gift, but it's also a summons. It's something to be maintained, which is why Paul says there in verse 2, be completely humble, be gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. We won't spend too much time teasing out the details here, but have a think about how this might play out in your small groups on campus. Because guaranteed in the next three weeks, somebody is going to have a theological axe to grind and come in hitting hard, and you're going to be like, okay, how do I deal with this person? Like they are not behaving or playing by the rules here. Or somebody will say something or do something, make a joke at someone's expense. It's actually really hurtful. You'll get your back up. You'll kind of arc up and you're like, I'm not sure I really want to have anything to do with this person. Like those are the tensions that we experience, not just outside the church, but within it. But the difference is because we have been granted a unity in Christ, we now have a motivation and the ability by God's spirit to maintain that unity. And so when those things happen, we can actually exercise humility, gentleness. We can bear with one another in love, knowing that, yes, we're all sinful, but we are growing towards Christ, rather than dividing and making enemies in our minds of the people that are reading the scriptures with us. So that's the first thing that we do. We maintain the unity that Christ gives us by his spirit. The second thing that we do to live a life worthy of the calling we've received, this is where we'll spend more of our time this morning, is attaining to Christ's maturity. Uh, And the reason that we are to attain to it is because maturity is the goal of the Christian life. You see it there in verse 13. Have a look with me. I'll start from the end of verse 12. Uh, That the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, question for you, I don't know whether you've ever wondered about this. Um, I ask myself odd and random questions every now and then. Maybe you've asked this question. Probably not. Have you ever thought, what is the purpose of a three-year-old? You ever sat up at night, can't sleep, just wondering what the answer to that, that question is? It's not to chase birds. It's not even to eat your boogers. It's to become an adult. In fact, that's why the purpose of parenting is to take children and you raise them to become responsible, independent, mature people. Essentially, what Paul is saying here is that the purpose of the Christian life is to grow up. And the maturity that he's talking about here, I think, is clarified for us at the end of that verse in verse 13. It's attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know, like little four-year-olds always try to measure up and will I be as tall as you one day, Daddy? Uh, Will I be as tall as you one day, Mummy? That's the sort of thing that's going on here. Just as a child looks to their parent to see what they should become, the church looks to Christ to see what they should become. Because in Christ is the whole measure of the fullness of being. Here's our standard, the, the thing that we want to be in totality. He's the one that we want to be like when we grow up. And that's why the prerequisite to maturity, according to Paul, is there at the beginning of the verse in verse 13. It's acquiring the unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Because how do you become like Jesus? Well, you learn everything about Jesus, don't you? And you learn about everything that he's ever taught. It's why it says the faith rather than just simply faith. Because Paul here is talking about the content of the Christian gospel, the content which Jesus gave through his apostles in the scriptures. And so the idea here is that the more we grow in our knowledge of the Son and his gospel, the more we uh, work towards unity in the faith, agreeing, coming to conclusions on what God, Jesus, taught us, 
We'll become more like Jesus. We'll start to think like him more. We'll love like him more. We'll be wise and make decisions like him more. Because that's the goal. It's Christ-like maturity. Now, let me ask you a question. When you look at those verses, say verse 12 and 13, what's the thing that's maturing? It's not individual Christians, is it? It's the church. And I think this distinction is really important for us. It involves Christians, but it's the one body together that matures. So let me ask you a question. Look up on the screen. What's wrong with this picture? It's grotesque, isn't it? This is something that should never be. It looks like, you know, some time has been spent kind of maturing, growing up, building the body here. But over here is a bit kind of sad. Uh, and I'm not taking any stabs at anyone whose arms normally look like that. Uh, but the point is, would you say that that's a mature body? No. There's no balance. But more importantly, things haven't grown together. And if we were to mature as Christians then, this is not an individual project. We need to work together. And that is actually a bit scary, isn't it? Because your maturity, the maturity of the body of Christ, which of you are part, actually depends on the person next to you. And more than that, the person next to you is required to grow you. What do we do with that? Well, let's have a look at how the body then grows. Let's have a look at the means of maturity. How does the body grow? Well, the answer we see in this passage is simply that God's people speak God's truth to each other in love. Now, we have to do a bit of work to see that in the passage, but it will be worth it. So let's start in verse 7 and try and muddle our way through. Uh, Paul says at the beginning of verse 7, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What is this grace? Well, we're told in the next verse there where Paul quotes Psalm 68. He says, This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to people. So what we see is we kind of compare the parallelism of of those two verses. Jesus gives each one of his people gifts as an expression of his grace. And of course, our expectation, because we've read ahead in the chapter, is that they will be for the building of the body. And so the question then for us is, what are those gifts? And that's the question I've got for you and the person next to you. What are the gifts that Jesus gives to his people? 30 seconds, go for it. Alrighty, I'm going to pull you back. Um, Is anyone brave enough to have a stab? What what are the gifts that Jesus gives to his people? Come on up your ears, you can do better than that. Grace, Grace? yep, we see that there in verse 7. Can we get a bit more specific than grace? Gifts to serve other people. Gifts to serve other people, yep, I think we're slowly starting to hone in on it. Have a look there at verse 11. So Christ himself gave grace, gifts, well, this will be a part of it, but he says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, the gifts are people. That's a little unexpected, isn't it? Because elsewhere, if you know your Bibles, where the Bible talks about gifts, like in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, Gifts are typically understood as like this broad spectrum of talents and abilities, even circumstances, through which people use to serve one another in the church. But here, those aren't the gifts that Paul is emphasising in Ephesians 4. He's emphasising people. And more than that, as we look at that list of five uh, names of people, it's a particular type of people, isn't it? They're all word ministry people. They all in some way preach and teach the word of God to people. 
Now, that's not to say that other gifts like hospitality or, or graphic design or financial management uh, or whatever aren't legitimate or needed. The, the scriptures list a whole bunch of gifts. Uh, but what this list tells us is there's a particular importance put on the activity of speaking God's truth that isn't put on those other activities and giftings in the church. And in fact, we can confirm that conclusion because if we go to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul lists a whole bunch of gifts, he tells us to desire the greater gifts. And the gifts that he's referring to there are the gifts that build up the body, gifts of speaking. Gifts that don't just build up individual Christians, but build up the church. And so having said that, we do need to acknowledge that Paul is not just talking about abilities, word, speaking, abilities and gifts, but in particular, people. These are word people. That's the complete picture of what the gift is. So let's have a look at what their role is. And we see it in verse 12. What does it say? It says their role is to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, this verse is tricky because I think these, this verse could mean one of two things, depending on what you do with that last phrase. Uh, and so the first way I think you can understand it is if that last phrase is in parallel with some of the other ones. I call this the passenger interpretation. Uh, and under this interpretation, Jesus gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to do two things. They equip God's people for works of service and they uh, then build up the body of Christ. Uh, and basically what this tells us then under this interpretation is that the, the specific work of word ministry that builds up the body is exclusively done by these types of people in the church. And I actually think you see this in practice in most churches. All, all, the ministers do all of the teaching. Uh, and the people kind of sitting in the pews, they're like passengers in a plane. The pilot's in there kind of navigating the course, trying to land somewhere. And the passengers kind of sit back, enjoy the, the ride. But, but they don't contribute to anything uh, to get to the destination. They just sit back and they let the ministry be done to them. So that's the first way. The second way of understanding the phrases is to kind of see them stack and I call this the player interpretation. And under this understanding, the, the growth of the body isn't solely the responsibility of the gifted people in verse 11. They'll do it, but they'll do something else that's just as important. They'll equip the members of the body to grow the body as well. So instead of a pilot and passengers, it's sort of like more like a coach and a team. The coach equips the team to play teaches them the theory, kind of gives them some practical advice, help them with strategy. Sometimes we'll kind of get onto the field and show them how to do things and do things as well. Uh, but the people in the church aren't passengers, they're, they're players. The work of maturity isn't just done to them, but it's done to each other as they work out together. And I think it's this second understanding of verse 12 that's the right one. Uh, because if we look at verses 15 to 16, we see it confirmed there. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For he, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So each one of us in the church is different. Each one of us will have a particular part to play in the growth of the body we saw that in chapter 2, verse 10. God has prepared works for each of us to do. Uh, and so whether it's music or, or advocacy or, or spreadsheets or, or whatever it is that you, you are gifted to do, the thing that you have, must do, the thing that every single one of us is called to do, regardless of your gifting or ability or inclination, is this, to speak the truth in love. We all have gifts, and this is the one thing that we all do together. Why? 
Because this is the way that the body of Christ is built up. It's by the speaking of God's truth. And what that means then is that you have a choice. Because whenever you gather with God's people, whether it's church on a Sunday, whether it's a CU small group, whether it's a Christian conference, wherever you find yourself among God's people, you can choose to either be a passenger or you can choose to be a player. That's the choice that you have. And Paul gives you two very different outcomes depending on what we choose. If we choose to be a passenger, then we will remain gullible infants. Have a look at verse 14. If the body doesn't mature, we will be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Now, I own a book at home. It's called Great Lies to Tell Small Children. Uh, And I think the book title tells you everything, doesn't it? Uh, It's basically just page after page of things that you should tell, probably shouldn't tell kids, but you could probably pull off. And this is my favourite one. Uh, If you can't read it, I'll read it out to you. It says, put a slice of ham in the DVD player. It will play a short film about pigs. And the reason I love that is because I can imagine it working, right? And the reason I know that it would work if I put a three or four-year-old up to that um, is because children are gullible. They just don't have the experience to know how things should be. Uh, In fact, they would be probably inclined to do that regardless of whether I told them to or not. But because they're gullible, it means that they're vulnerable. And what Paul says here is if the body doesn't build itself up, then that's what we are. Vulnerable. We'll have no sense of discernment, no solid ground of truth, and we'll just be thrown about in the sea, believing whatever it is that the next person comes and tells us. And the sad and sobering truth that Paul alerts us to in this verse is that there are people out there who know that. People who do not care about you. People who only care about power or control or money. And what they'll do is they will say things to you to earn your trust that sound so much like the gospel of Jesus that you'll be convinced. At least if you're still an infant. Because you won't be able to tell the difference. Because as Paul tells us, they're cunning. And they're crafty and they're deceitful in their schemes. And so they won't come up to you and say things like, hey, did you know that the only way to be saved is child sacrifice? So let's go find some some children and and sacrifice them. This is ridiculous. They won't say something like that. They'll come up and say something like this. They'll say, you must be baptised to be saved. Now, this isn't made up. Over the last couple of years, uh, some sort of Christian organisation has kind of been turning up on campus walking up to students, including some of the CUers, and basically been telling them exactly this. Now, question for you, is that true? Let me give you some Bible verses. I heard some no's. Let's see if you're right. Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. What about a little bit later this time? It's Paul. Now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptised... And wash your sins away, calling on his name. How certain are you now? Is it true? It's cunning, isn't it? And to cut to the chase, the statement isn't true. This is probably a better way of putting it. Saved people should be baptised. And we saw back in Ephesians chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago, right, that the thing that saves us is God through Christ. We place our faith in him. Faith itself isn't even a work. Salvation is done from God, from first to last. And so the things that we do do not contribute to that equation at all. But it's tricky, isn't it? Baptism, not the basis of our salvation. 
It is a command, something that we should respond to in the scriptures, but not something that contributes to whether or not we are saved before God. And my question to you is this, how confident would you be in responding to somebody who came to you and said that with all of the verses in tow, ready to knock you down with all of your responses? If God's people hadn't already spoken to you the truth that we saw in Ephesians 2, that your salvation is dependent on nothing that you do. So how do you stay steady in a stormy sea? How do you stop the person next to you, let alone yourself, from drowning? It won't be by being a passenger. It'll be by choosing to be a player. Well, what does that look like? Well, let's finish up with this. We'll make a couple of observations. I think the key phrase in all of this is speaking the truth in love. This is how we be a player in the body of Christ. So let me give you three things with which to finish our time together. What does it look like to speak the truth in love? Well, the first thing is that you need to know the truth. Now, you can't speak it if you don't know it, right? And so what that means is that you need to put yourself under people who have been gifted by Jesus to the church to teach that truth. The people that we saw up in verse 11. And that means if you aren't at a church regularly, then you need to start going to one. It's not going to save you, but this is how the body grows. Because this is God's design for his people. And when you find a church and choose a church, find one that preaches the gospel, one that teaches the Bible with trustworthy people in a community that talks about the Bible and seeks to make it shape their life. If you have trouble, you're not sure how to go about doing that, come and talk to one of us. We will more than happily help you work that one out. So that's the first thing, know the truth. Once you know the truth, you have to second, speak the truth. Not rocket science, is it? So let me ask you, when you interact with other Christians, what are you speaking about? What fills your conversation? Uh, if we were to put a whole bunch of hidden microphones around the CU, put it in the CU room, in the ref, uh, and we kind of recorded it and played it back, what would we hear? Uh, my guess is that at this stage, maybe it's just the circles I travel in the CU, we talk a whole bunch about Star Wars. Um, and it's deeply concerning, isn't it? Now, let me be clear that there's more joke than rebuke. You are human. Be normal. Have interests. Be excited about them. Talk to each other about them. Okay. What I'm not advocating here is like you know, one of those closed kind of Christian communities where the only thing that we talk about is the theological interpretation of Ephesians 4.12 and how the phrases relate to one another. Like what I'm not saying is that is the only thing that we're doing, right? But you see what I'm driving at, hey? If the sum total of our conversations here, after church, in our small groups, just kind of sits at that kind of surface level and superficial, never really gets past just kind of inconsequential things like Jedi then we're drowning, aren't we? So after you hear a Bible talk, it doesn't have to even be here, it can be at church, ask the person next to you what you found encouraging or challenging. At the ref or the church morning tea, ask somebody how life is going. Ask them if they need prayer for anything. Do the really awkward thing and ask them what they're reading in the Bible at the moment. You feel, you feel Christian when you ask that question, don't you? You feel like you're just putting somebody on, on, on the spot. Uh, but that awkwardness we push through. In fact, we embrace that awkwardness because what are we seeking? We're seeking stable maturity, not gullible infancy. We want to see the body grow, and so we speak the truth. That's the second thing. The third thing, again, not rocket science, you speak the truth in love. Now, I think most of us kind of think of God's truth like a club. If you're the one speaking the truth, then you're bludgeoning people into submission. And if you're the one hearing God's truth, then you've got your arms up trying to protect yourself from getting hurt. But if the truth is spoken in love, 
both of those responses will never happen, will they? Because the one who speaks it won't be trying to win an argument or justify their position. They'll be speaking it to the person across from them so that they'll grow. And the one hearing it won't be kind of arms up defensively because they love the word of God. They want it to change them and they'll trust the person speaking it to them that as they speak it, they're speaking it for their good. Now, that's the ideal. That doesn't mean it'll be easy because both speaking and hearing the truth will sometimes be difficult. We don't like being wrong and being called out on things, whether it's things that we believe or things that we do. It's just it's, we don't like it. And we also don't like being the person who does that. We're kind of afraid of the, oh, they're going to think that I'm just like this arrogant person who thinks that I'm right and you're wrong and you just need to sit down. And so we kind of we, we back off and we don't bring up things that we know we should. We'll question our motives. We'll feel exposed. But the thing that I hope this passage shows you is that this process, speaking the truth in love, is necessary if we are together as a community to become more like Jesus. And so because of that, we don't shy away from the hard conversations when we need to have them. And it's because we love each other. But here's the thing that we often forget. Speaking the truth in love also means that we don't shy away from the encouraging conversations. Because the truth corrects, but it also lifts up. And I'm sure you'll agree, I know of nothing else that brings the comfort and the assurance and the joy and the strength that the gospel brings. And so this this thing that Paul gives us today, it's not just a great responsibility, but it's a great privilege and a great excitement as well. We get to speak the truth of the gospel to one another and in doing so, grow ourselves out of infancy into the full measure of Christ. So let me finish by saying to all of you players out there that the game starts 